0: You are listening to Changing Careers, a podcast about how MBA careers are changing and how MBAs change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. Today's guest is Zora Kaku, who's worked for more than ten years in a variety of things, all doing, all, all, all having to do with a social purpose since she graduated from her MBA. Um, so I just wanted to ask Zora right now if she could uh, introduce herself and tell us a little bit about your career after the MBA.
1: Hi, Konrad. Um, sure. So I'm Zora Kaku, and I am the director of the Muslim Youth Helpline. Um, when I did my MBA, I had come from the world of consulting, and in some ways, it felt a little strange, because most people were trying to go into consulting, and I was trying to come out of consulting. And um, what I really wanted to do was to, uh, well, very naively, I guess, I wanted to change the world. So I wanted to work in uh, social enterprises, look at Differences that businesses could make to the world, and uh, so after my MBA, I worked at a company called Decode, which was in Canada, which looked at engaging young people, and then uh, started an enterprise of my own. So I was a founder for a good seven odd years, and um, now I run a charity called the Muslim Youth Helpline.
0: So there's quite a bit to uh, unpack over the you know over the last uh, ten over years since since your MBA. But I wanted to ask a bit about. Uh, the social enterprise that you founded right, um, called Halal Gems. Can you tell us a bit about what that is and how did you come, come around to that idea?
1: Well, um, actually, I think it started off with, um, I read a book by a guy called Michael Pollan and um, it really changed the way that I thought about food. So I grew up eating halal meat and it's just something that my family had done since I was young And um, it really made me question things. And and, uh, Michael has this great series on Netflix, actually, called Cooked, which is fantastic. I'd really recommend it. But it really gets me thinking about what kind of food we eat, um, where our food kind of comes from, the food chain. And actually, this was the same year where we had the horse meat scandal. I don't know if you remember it. It's this thing where um, whatever people thought we were eating, we were actually eating horse meat. And um, So it really, really got me thinking, what the hell is in our food? And he's got this great thing called the bread test, where you ask people, what are the ingredients in bread? And um, generally, you can come up with maybe five or six ingredients that are in bread. But the average number of ingredients um, on your kind of pack of bread that you buy from a supermarket is something like 14. And so his question is, well, what else is in there? And I guess we all know there are preservatives in our food, but um, it's about thinking about what are those things and what do they do and what are they for. And so I got thinking, well, actually, what does halal mean and um, what should it mean? And is it different in the supply chain? And it got me thinking a lot. I became vegetarian for um, a good few months and I got completely obsessed with um, only eating food that I had made. And um, it really made me think. I went to uh, something like 900 restaurants in the first year of founding this company, Halal Gems. And um, I asked the restaurant owners, what would it take to get you to stock organic and free range uh, meat? And they all said, well, you know, it's a business. And so if the restaurant down the road got more customers because that's what people wanted, then that's what we would do. And that got me thinking about consumer demand. And I guess there's two sides of it, which is one is um, the supply side. But really what I wanted to do was increase demand for those sorts of things in the market. So I founded Halal Gems. It was uh, a restaurant finder to start off with. So if you're in anywhere in the UK, you can look and find where you can find good quality halal food. Um, and then we started a street food festival, which um, sort of accidentally became the biggest street food festival in London, uh, which we held at Spitalfields, Old Spitalfields Market. Um, that's been running every year since, actually, which, um, which is really exciting. And I have to say that's probably one of the highlights of my time there is... Um, Looking around at sixty thousand people and thinking, "Oh my goodness, we did this," which was um, a proud moment, I guess. But that's the that's the the startup that I founded. It all sounds really rosy and, and fun, but actually, it was quite hard.
0: I, I don't think I could name five ingredients in bread, um, <laughs> but I was interested. You know, when you said about thinking through where do you where does your food come from or, or the ingredients, right? And um, uh, I, I I'm I don't I'm not a halal food eater myself, but I as I understand it, you know, for something to be uh, certified halal, they have to go through a certain certification process, which looks at things like supply chain, etc. So, was there? Did you think about how to work with, say, a certification, the certification mm-hmm. authorities on, on on this aspect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are there are lots of. The thing is, it gets quite complicated because um, we did some research and found there were 52 different certification bodies in the UK that could tell you that your food is halal. And it's a little bit like um, kosher. You need somebody to kind of certify that it was all done in the right way. But the thing that people um, I think were ignoring a lot back then is um, the requirements, particularly religiously. There's a, there's something about making sure that you slaughter an animal in the most I mean, slaughtering an animal is never going to be kind because the animal is going to die. So I don't think we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking this is going to be a nice thing for them at all. But it's about trying to reduce the impact and the damage and the pain and things like um, an animal should never see another animal die, things like that. Um, But really what we'd we'd been missing, I think, is looking at the system as a whole and looking at things like how are animals reared and are are they cared for in their lives as well? And um, we hadn't really been putting much um, effort into that, I think. So um, I looked at uh, certification bodies and the differences between them. Also the international supply chain, because um, a lot of meat is imported. A lot of lamb, for example, comes through from New Zealand. Um, And uh, it gets quite complicated because even places like Malaysia have different certifications to Dubai, different to Australia. It's, It's very interesting and it's a complex kind of place to be. And I think the thing I realized is that um, I think it was a Canadian um, abattoir owner who said to me, you know what, uh, we can do whatever you want. We can raise the animals however you want. We can slaughter them however you want. What you need to do is just tell me what you want. And that was the thing that we were trying to do is translate actually what consumers would be happy with and would aspire to is what we need to get the supply chain to make. So it became very interesting kind of speaking to those um different uh, stakeholders in the supply chain and I think we did create some change certainly there are more organic and free range outlets and we've certainly raised awareness of these sorts of things much more which is really nice but I do think um, you can have an entire career in any single part of those even you know I met people who are specialists in things like the chemicals that are used to transport animals and things like that it's a very it's very um there's a big wide world, I guess, out there in, in this whole thing. But I do think when I reflect on it now, I think really the big thing we need to do is just eat less meat. I think that would be better for the climate, better for all of us, really.
0: So I think you mentioned um, the street f- food festival that you organized. And was that really to uh, fit in with raising the demand side? Because you you said you initially you got that uh, pushback from restaurant owners or su- on the supply side. So what did you do other than this, you know, with, and of course you can talk about the street festival itself, but what did you do to um, change the demand or change people's perceptions of what they should be eating?
1: Well, that was really interesting actually because I think the motivations for that were twofold. It was, firstly, it was, I, I would go around to, um, let's say the Southbank's Winter Festival or just general food festivals all over the country. I remember traveling to loads and loads of them because I'm a bit of a foodie. So, well, I have to be, I guess, to be this interested in food, but um, I couldn't eat things. So I'd go there and see, oh, there's this fantastic looking steak. Oh, well, um, I can't have it because it's not halal. And I think that disappointment is something that the whole halal market feels. You know what it's like. You're brought up to kind of look at the ingredients on everything, just to check that it's something that's okay for you to eat. So one thing was, I wanted to have a street food festival where you could go there and eat anything you wanted. That is like Christmas. It's this whole thing of like, wow, I can actually eat anything. And it's very novel. And it wasn't the case back then when we started this. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was, I think halal food has a really bad rep. When you, when you see what the sort of headlines are in the general sort of press and media, it's all about how halal is like evil and terrible and things like that. But actually, um, when you look at the guidelines... They're pretty in line with the DEFRA guidelines, um, which are the government's guidelines as to how to care for and slaughter animals. And I keep emphasizing this thing about slaughtering animals because unless you're vegan um, and you're you're eating meat, you're slaughtering an animal. There's no two ways about it. That animal is dying. And um, you want to do that in the most compassionate way possible. And I guess... um, I guess it was also about, for me, the sort of second motivation was just to show people that actually, halal meat is just like any other meat. If you're eating meat, then there's nothing scary about it. It's not like it's more painful or worse or anything like that. It's just general meat. So it was twofold in terms of the the motivations. And I hope we managed to achieve both of those in some ways.
0: Were you able to reach out to people who had never eaten halal food before, but... Uh, through halal gems uh, discovered new foods that they, they they found that they liked
1: yeah um, and i think that we saw a lot when uh, in terms of feedback from the street food festival the other thing that was great was the publicity around it so um, a street food festival in london i think will always go under some some uh, publicity but we were on the front page of the buzzfeed website for Uh, the whole day, the first day of our first festival. And I think that was really interesting because there you have thousands of people who are discovering um, halal food that they just never thought before. And I think some people um, view halal as a cuisine. It's not a cuisine. You can have halal Peruvian food and halal Indian food and halal American food and halal any food really. So I think that was the big thing that we were trying to get people to understand is that it's not a cuisine in and of itself. It's just a type of ingredient that you use. And um, being able to kind of um, have all of that publicity, I think really helped us to get across that message.
0: So your LinkedIn profile, uh, you say you occasionally do things at the BAFTAs. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what is that about?
1: Um, that was a, uh, I think I was just being a bit in cheek on my LinkedIn profile. I really should um, uh, update that properly. Um, it's... Um, I had this really unique and bizarre experience of being part of a television show a couple of years ago, which was called Muslims like us. And, um, it was, the idea was that you get 10 different types of Muslims, put them in a house together. Sounds a little bit like big brother, but they didn't film us sleeping and they didn't film us in the, in the shower. So, um, the idea was to get people in a house just to kind of see what happens. It was a bit of a social experiment. And, um, I think the big sort of message um, of the whole thing was that Muslims come in all sorts of um, forms and um, you can't, when you think about things like Islamophobia, what are you actually scared of? Because Muslims are people just like any other people. And it's it's a bit strange to, to feel like you need to say that. But I think in this world of sort of xenophobia and all the kind of crazy things that are happening, um, it's quite important, I think, also to get that message across and to even just spark that conversation, actually, about you know everyone's just a person. Um, but that show won a BAFTA, which was really interesting because I got to meet Joanna Lumley, who I really love, and so that was a lot of fun and a really bizarre experience. Um, yeah, but but I guess um, I didn't do anything in terms of earning the BAFTA. It was really bizarre being called the talent, but um, we won a BAFTA, which was really cool.
0: How did you get on the show?
1: Oh my goodness! It was um, it was the weirdest thing. So um, uh, my sister sent me um, an email from a journalist, and I was running halal gems. And usually, with um, with halal gems and publicity, I feel like all publicity is great. And so, whenever a journalist emails, I always um, email straight back and say, "Here's my number," in case because they're always on a bit of a deadline, and and I guess they want to go with the story of whoever emails them back first. So I just sent mine. I didn't even read it properly. I just sent them back my number. And this woman, uh, Farah, who's fantastic, she called and she told me what the show was about. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm just going to be honest. I I didn't read the email properly, Um, but I'm not the right person for this. Um, If I think of anyone, I'll let you know. And we got talking and she was just kind of telling me about things. And um, we got talking about sort of the narrative around immigrants and Muslims and, and any other sort of minorities, I guess. And the thing that I said myself during that conversation was, the thing is when sort of normal people, I guess, I think I use that word, but just general kind of just general people pass up opportunities to be in the media, then what happens is it's all the kind of fringe kind of people who are absolutely on the edge of things, who are not a representative of your general Muslim end up being the people who are on television. So you have crazy shows about people like that guy with the hook from Finsbury Park and things like that and and as a muslim you watch that and think why are they profiling people who are so cray cray and um and i said that and she said oh keeping that in mind then would you do the show and i was like oh my god i've just shot myself in the foot i just kind of set myself up so that i couldn't say no and i did a little bit of research just to make sure that the producers weren't um didn't have like a an agenda or things like that because the thing is if somebody's filming you for 10 days They can make you look like whatever they want to make you look like, I thought. Um, But thankfully, they did a really good job in being really true to what happened. They distilled 10 days down into two hours. And I think they did a really good job at making it quite representative.
0: I have to ask you, did you cook during those 10 days for the rest of your (laughs) housemates since you you, you founded Halal Gems, right?
1: You know, I did a little bit. But the amazing thing was um, Nabil, who was on the show, he made this incredible food and almost every day, I have to say a huge thanks to him because he basically made food for 10 people every single day, pretty much, at least for dinner. And he was incredible. So what we all ended up doing was being his sous chefs and chopping things for him and getting things ready. But he was incredible. And, and I hadn't tasted cuisine like that before. It was really, I guess it was home homemade food as well, which was really um, stuff you couldn't really get in a restaurant. So um, yeah, so he made most of the food. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I basically just had a really nice time hanging around in the sunshine in, in Yorkshire, which was really nice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you gave up a career in reality TV, um, <laughs> went back to Halal Gems, but um, more recently you uh, headed up a social enterprise which, as I understand it, you had quite a long association with. Could you tell us a bit more about the work you did with the Muslim Youth Helpline?
1: Sure. So um, I joined the Muslim Youth Helpline. So it's a charity founded back in 2001. And back then I was, um, I guess, 19 odd years old. And um, it was actually someone who I knew who set it up. And I joined the organization as a volunteer. And the idea of it is it's literally just a helpline that's open every single day of the year. And it's faith and culturally sensitive. So you can call up the helpline for free. And um, they kind of provide emotional support and signposting and just kind of help you through whatever issues that you're going through. And at that time, I joined up to be um, a volunteer um, on the helpline. So I was a helpline worker actually taking calls. And I, for a few years, um, I ended up being on the board of trustees. And I actually was still on the board when, uh, when I joined uh, for my MBA. And the thing is, the work on the MBA was just a lot. And I found myself staying up till really late working on things. And then I thought, actually, I'm neglecting my work at the helpline. So um, when my term as a trustee came up for review, I didn't go for a second term and left the organization for about 10 years. And then um, two or three years ago, um, somebody called me, someone who I didn't even know called me and said, I heard the Muslim Youth Helpline is in trouble. Um, will you go along to a meeting just to kind of discuss it? And the thing about, the great thing about running your own company is you really set your own time. So I had the luxury of saying, yeah, sure, I'll go along to this meeting in a couple of days' time because why not? And I really care about the cause. It's a real, I think it really, it saves people's lives and it makes um, people's quality of life better too. So I went to this meeting and it turns out it was in a really, really um, tough place. So um, at that time, it was the beginning of the month. And there wasn't enough in the, in the charity's um, reserves to pay for salaries for that same month. And I ended up um, helping out part-time and a few months later then applied for the full-time director role. And that was a real change for me because um, I was running my own thing. And it didn't even occur to me that I could not continue running my own thing. And um, it was actually, um, I had an employee at the time who said, you know what, when you talk about the helpline, you really light up. Do you think your interests have changed? And I thought, actually, I've been doing this halal food thing for seven odd years. And um, I think my interests have changed. I think, actually, I'd rather be a bit more obsessed with mental health and helping people through things right now. Um, And so I applied for the full-time director role and then um, sold Halal Gems. That was also a tough tough thing to do because I I remember at the time I had maybe five or six different organizations who were really excited to take over Halal Gems and buy it and do different things with it but none of them felt right. None of them felt like they would be true to the reason why I set it up and the aims. I felt a lot like there were a lot of commercial things people wanted to do. And there's nothing wrong with it being um, super commercial. It's just that I wanted it to retain its kind of heart and its reason for being and its mission also. And um, it took a few months actually to, to figure out who would be the best person to take it over. Um, and I'm super glad um, it went to Amalia who are running it now. And um I think I realized that they that they were absolutely the right people to give it to when I went to the last street food festival, which was the first one that I hadn't organized. So I was at Street Eats and i was looking around and thinking this is much more inclusive. It's much more diverse. There are people here who never would have come here before when I was running it because they reach a completely different audience. And I it was so it was just really nice to feel like it had gone to the right place. Um, And and in parallel to that, the work at the helpline, I feel like is so meaningful, it's really hard, but I think turning, doing the sort of transformation from where the helpline was in a lot of trouble to a place now where, particularly through the pandemic, we've seen such a huge rise in inquiries, everybody's mental health is suffering, and um, that's been a real It's been such a privilege to be able to help people through that. So I'm really glad that we've spent this last couple of years slogging away trying to make things better and trying to ensure that the helpline is still around and has good funding um, and good marketing and good finance and all of that sort of stuff um, because it really feels like we're shining now. We're, We're actually a service that's able to help people, which is great.
0: We'll come back to the pandemic a bit later, but I wanted to ask, from the time you started volunteering with the helpline, till taking over and just before the pandemic. Were there differences in the kinds of issues that callers were were using the helpline for?
1: Yes, um, absolutely. So um, I think one really clear example is so, well, just to say the top issues are always the same. For the last you know, 19 years that the helpline has been running, the top issues, the top ones are always, one is mental health, which is everything from anxiety, suicidal thoughts, depression, all of those sorts of things. Um, and the second is relationships. so whether that's um, you know sort of romantic relationships, relationships with your parents, your siblings, all those sorts of things, which I think is a very human thing, both those things being the top the top issues. but um, one thing that's changed I'll uh, give you an example is um, addiction so um, 19 years ago when we were doing addiction training for the volunteers and the staff at the helpline, it would be very much based on things like drug addiction. And that's what we looked at because those were the issues that were coming in. What we've got now is um, uh, a change to a lot of more behavior addictions. So pornography addiction is um, a really big issue. And then social media addiction is another one. And it's changed to the extent that we've changed our training now that actually drugs is a smaller part of our training. And we spend more of our of our addiction training time looking at behavior addictions and it's because young people are coming to us with addictions that they feel like they just can't shake, which is um a really, really hard place to be. And I think because these things are so kind of ubiquitous in, in our society, it's um it's really hard for them. And when it starts affecting your life, you feel like you're the only person going through it. Um, because that's what kind of what's what you see in the media. But actually, um you're not. Actually it's very common. So those sorts of issues have changed. I think um that's what's changed over time, but then um, over things like the pandemic, um, we've had a huge increase in, firstly, anxiety, which is, I think, completely understandable. Um, and then the other thing is suicidal feelings. I don't know why suicidal feelings has gone up so much, um, but I guess there's something about the pandemic that is really, really um, heavy and hard for people. Um, and domestic abuse, of course, um, which has gone up, I think, across the board.
0: How do you get the word out about the helpline to the people who need that help?
1: Um, so we, we're on all the sort of social media channels and, and we do kind of the usual sort of marketing thing. But I think really the the best thing for us has been word of mouth. It's been... So social, um, uh, mental health and having mental health issues, I think is still quite stigmatized, uh, stigmatized. And I think people find it hard to kind of say, oh, actually... I'm not okay, or, you know, I need help or things like that. But what what's happened over the years is people who have been using our service understand why it's useful to use, and then they pass it on. So we do ask people, you know, where did you hear about the helpline? Um, people will say, oh, you know, my friend told me about it, or my parents told me about it for younger people. Um, or, you know, I saw this interview online. But I think the best thing is, um, and I, I really like that, People are telling each other about it because it just means that people find value in the service. And they think even if you don't tell your friend, oh, you know, I use this helpline and it's really good. You can still tell them, oh, there is this helpline. You don't have to tell them that you used it. So I think that word of mouth thing has been really, really good for us. Um, And it's meant that we're up to capacity. So we're now currently we get more inquiries than we can even handle, which is um, obviously a different kind of challenge. Um, but a good one because I think it really proves the, um, the need for a niche service like this.
0: So what do you, I mean, there, there's been a lot of um, other kind of support organizations available out there. Mm. What do you do that's different at the Muslim Youth Helpline um, to make it you know, much more attractive as a proposition to the people who need that help?
1: That's a really interesting question, actually, because I think in an ideal world, we wouldn't need to exist because general mainstream services would be able to deal with inquiries from these young people just as well as other ones. Um, but I think um, it, one thing is we are faith and culturally sensitive. So we understand what people are talking about when they're talking about their family, um, family issues and things like that. But um, the other thing we do do behind the scenes at the helpline is help other helplines to understand young people better. So, um, for example, we had a helpline. It's a national helpline, um, and they have several centres around the UK, very different to us because we have one tiny little office and they have a huge, huge reach. And they got in touch with us and said, um, you know, we've got this centre in Birmingham. And the thing about Birmingham is it's got a really huge Muslim population. And um, so the average caller for us is a 14-year-old young Pakistani Muslim girl but the average person who's taking the call is a white middle-class woman. And could you help our um, our call operators to understand the lives of these young women? And that was a really interesting project to work on, actually, because um, helping other helplines to understand young, young people from a, from this background better is really useful because at the end of the day, it's all about if you're a young person who needs help, we want you to get help. It kind of doesn't matter where from. As long as it's good quality, if we can help them reach out to other helplines better, that's still a success for us. The point is they're getting help and they're able to talk through their issues. So we have been working with other organizations to help them to become more uh, faith and culturally sensitive. And I do think, you know, I, I don't know if it will happen anytime soon, but it would be great if you could just call Childline or, or the NSPCC or the Samaritans or whoever, and they would kind of understand as much as, um, as we do. I think that would be it would be really nice. But I think the other thing is um, when you look at role models. So with young Muslims, particularly under sixteen, we found that they look at role models and think, okay, all these other people who are saying you should call these other helplines, they're not like me. So where you have um, Muslim role models who are kind of saying, oh, here's a thing about Muslim Youth Helpline, you know, who who do this work, I think it's a thing of they see themselves in us. And they're able to then identify and feel like actually it just takes away one of the barriers to calling. Because there are so many barriers to calling, so many. I mean, things like confidentiality, can I trust them? Are they going to record my phone call? Are they going to tell people what's going on? Um, even just the fact of reaching out for help is a very brave thing to do. So I think just taking off this one barrier, it really helps people um, to to get through. And, and like I said, I feel like it doesn't matter where you get help from. It's just that currently... Um, we seem to be the right place. And I think one day if demand kind of reduced, then actually it would make sense to think about, um, you know, merging the organisation or something like that. But currently um, we're just overwhelmed with how many people need
0: us. Obviously the work that uh, you do and other organisations do in terms of um, speaking to people in need is is, is great. But obviously there's also going to be a larger sort of system of resources that... uh, people need to solve those you know the problems that, that you you come across um, what's maybe one or two things that you feel whether it's government uh, or businesses could do to help solve so the the issues that uh, are coming through on the helpline
1: oh well, that's an interesting one what could government or other um So the first thing is, I think um, we need to take young people really seriously. The thing about under 18s is they're not voters yet. Um, And I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this next generation and how they vote. Um, But I think it just means that their needs aren't addressed as well as they could be. Um, So I know funding, for example, is a huge, huge issue across um, across the sector in general. I think the, the the kind of the charity and social enterprise sector in general is suffering a lot. I'm sure other sectors are also, but I guess just working a bit better in partnership would be useful because what happens is you end up with services that people just don't use. And if you don't go to um, to those young people first and say, what do you actually need? And the best people to tell you what young people need are the young people themselves. So I think the first thing is starting off with with that. I think it's a, it's a really big thing. I think the second thing is doing the same thing when it comes to communities. When you're trying to reach communities that are hard to reach, go to the gatekeepers of those communities, go to the communities themselves, rather than kind of saying, oh, I think this is what we need and these are the sorts of services that we need and we'll create them, but then nobody uses them and people sort of wonder why. So I think that's a that's a really big thing is really starting starting the work from doing the harder thing, which is actually consulting and seeing what you should actually create and build. I think that's... um. That's a big thing.
0: Zora, as we start to wrap up, wanted to ask you, Have you what, what have you applied uh, from your learnings on the MBA to the current work that you do?
1: Oh my. Um, well, that's really interesting because I feel like in some ways I've applied everything at some point. Um, and I know the thing about doing um, uh, a year-long degree is you're not going to remember everything 10 years later. I- I'll tell you one thing though, is um, the which it's, it's been a while and I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's like the management, it's called management something. And it, you're looking at the kind of, I guess what we used to call the sort of softer skills and kind of understanding people and, and situations and looking at kind of how, why people behave the way that they behave. It's interesting because I think a lot of people um, in my year anyway, um, thought that that was sort of the fluffy stuff. And I honestly think it's the most important stuff actually, when, when I look at um, what well, I've been doing in this last uh, 10 odd years. Um, it's really, really important to think about human behavior. And again, I, I keep going back to the pandemic, but it's a bit like, well, we've got all this technology and we've got all this, you know, advances in human thinking and, and institutions and all sorts of things. But are we doing any better than we did when the same thing happened 100 years ago? I mm, don't know. And why is that? And that's all because of human behavior and how people behave and think and things like that. So I think that's been a real, a big one. But I think the other thing um, that's been really important for me is um, my classmates. So, um, and also, I suppose, even other people from other years of the MBA, where it's actually, you may not know how to solve something, but you do have somebody who you can call who might be able to help with that and has a different perspective. Um, And I think that's been really, really useful. So even when I don't know what the hell to do, I can probably find out, which is really useful.
0: That's great advice for uh, all MBA students, really. And, and I know quite a number will be starting uh, their own MBA in a few weeks, a few months' time. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Zora.
1: Yeah, I just remembered it's management practice. That's what it was
0: called. Yes, it is management practice. <laughs> and and it, it's still there and still people uh, talk about the le- what they've learned many years after that.
1: It's brilliant. It really is fantastic. So if you are starting your MBA, it's definitely one worth paying attention to.
0: Well, thank you very much, Zora.
1: Thank you, Conrad.
0: You can listen to this show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, subscribe if you've not done so. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Just one favor, share this with someone you know who would benefit from listening. You can leave a rating and review. It helps others discover the show. You can let me know what you think about the show by tweeting me at ConradChua16, Chua Chua is spelled C-H-U-A, or you can find me on Instagram at Chua, Chua again, C-H-U-A. Till next time, this is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers.